Welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Church. Covenant Grace Church is one church meeting in multiple locations. This message was recorded at our Menifee campus. Like I said, we're going to start in the Sermon on the Mount. And if you look in Matthew, it's Matthew um, 5 through 7. And so we're going to be doing that for the next several weeks. Um, the book of Matthew, so there's four Gospels, four main books. This is four, four. Uh, four, four Gospels. This one's Matthew. Matthew has a very strong Jewish flavor. Um, Matthew was written towards uh, Jews. And so there's a lot of Old Testament connections in there. There's a lot of Old Testament references. There's a lot of Jewish customs that he mentions but doesn't explain. And the reason is, is the original audience would have known what he was talking about. And in it a lot, Jesus is referred to as the son of David. He's referred to this as the son of David because Matthew wants to show that Jesus is the true Messiah. He is the true king that God has promised to come and restore God's kingdom on earth. And so, um, and what's really interesting is this Sermon on the Mount, where it's placed in Matthew's gospel. And um, I didn't see this myself, but I had heard this before. Um, If you look at the flow of it, it's really interesting because Jesus in chapter 2, it talks about Jesus as a baby that when, you know, they wanted to kill him, Herod wanted to kill him, he went off to Egypt, right? And so in chapter 2, Jesus, the young Jesus, is being taken out of Egypt and uh, what, what it, Matthew's doing is he wants to show that Jesus is bringing the true kingdom in. Just as the kingdom of Israel was pulled out of Egypt, Jesus comes out of Egypt. The next thing that happens there is that he gets baptized. And just as the nation of Israel, that kingdom, went through the waters of, of the Red Sea, Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism. And then it's really interesting. The next thing he does is what? He goes into the wilderness He goes into the wilderness to be tested for 40 days, just like the kingdom of Israel was tested for 40 years in the wilderness. So Matthew is doing this thing where he's showing that Jesus is the true uh, kingdom. He brings the kingdom. And what's really interesting here is in Matthew 5, 1, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain and he sat with his disciples and he opened his mouth and he taught them and he gives them commands. What does that remind you of in Israel's history? This is like Mount Sinai, right? Jesus goes up on the mountain, he brings his people to himself, and he gives him them the rules of the kingdom, the laws of the kingdom. And so the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus giving the commands of his kingdom, the kingdom that he's bringing in. And what's cool is it doesn't read like just like a dry legal text, does it? When you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's full of graphic images. Jesus is an amazing teacher this way. I mean, it has things like salt and light, doesn't it? It has uh, gifts being left at altars. It has men being dragged to court. It has people tearing their eyes out and chopping their hands off. It has dudes slapping each other in the face. It has uh, people losing their shirts, literally. It has people with logs stuck in their eyes. There's birds and lilies, moths and rust. There's dogs and pearls and pigs and bread and stones and fish and serpents. There's people choosing different roads. There's wolves dressed up like sheep. There are trees bearing fruit and houses being beaten by a storm. It's stunning in its visuals when you really sit back and you go, Jesus doesn't just give a dry law here. He gives all these stunning visuals. One author put it this way, Jesus does not simply tell us what to do. He invites us to see the world the way he sees it. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus isn't just wanting to give us commands. He does that. But he also wants to show us and help us to see the world the way he sees it. That's why there's so many visuals in this sermon. And and Jesus does, though, tell us what to do. There are, in these hundred sentences, 50 commands. 
That's pretty command heavy. <laughs> you know, you got 100 sentences, you have 50 commands. This is the law of the kingdom, and some of it is super intimidating. I'll tell you, as I was kind of thinking through what are we going to start next, this was one of the options. There were others. I won't tell you what they are, because then you'd be like, why didn't you do that, you know? But I'm not going to do that. But, um, but as I was thinking about doing the Sermon on the Mount, there's parts of the Sermon on the Mount that freak me out. And there's parts that I haven't gotten to yet and haven't studied deep enough to where I can really be settled about how this gets applied. I mean, I'm intimidated by things like Matthew 5, uh, 39. It says, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you, think about this one. If anyone would sue you to take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Listen to this one. Give to the one who begs from you and do not re refuse the one who borrows from you. You think, give to anyone who asks, like, let them have my shirt too. I mean, I'm kind of worried that after I'm done, somebody out there is, you guys are going to like slap me in the face and ask for 50 bucks. And you're going to be like, hey, aren't we doing the Sermon on the Mount? You know, and of course we need to study this and understand what Jesus intended and how we're supposed to live this out in a world that really wants to take advantage of us. Like, but I also don't want to be the guy that stands up in front of Jesus and says, oh, that's not what he meant. You know, imagine him, he's sitting on the mount, he's saying all these things in the Sermon on the Mount, which he did, and then I'm the guy that's going to stand up in front of him and go, oh, I know that sounded crazy, but what he really means is this. Like, I don't want to do that. And so the sermon is intimidating to me as well. Um, but it's, it's also captivating, guys. And you know, I'm not, a, I'm not the only one that's been afraid of the Sermon on the Mount. I, I, as I look through these hard commands and stuff, and then I look through how it's been interpreted in the past, people have found all kinds of different ways to try to avoid how intense the sermon is. Um, the medieval Catholic view, which was championed by like Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century, he believed that the Sermon on the Mount, and he taught this, had two tiers. So there's a lower tier, a lower level that's easy, that's for all Christians. And then there's an upper level that's super hard, that's only for saints. And so certain people, certain saints would go, you know what, I'm going to live that, I'm going to take a vow of chastity and poverty and all those things, and I'm going to live the Sermon on the Mount. That was one view. Um, the Lutheran view, which came a little bit later, was that G what Jesus is doing here is he's restating the law of Moses, but showing how hard it really is so that we'll turn to Christ. And that's all it's doing, okay? And I think there's truth to that, but they would say that's all it's doing. You just read it, you go, wow, I can never live this, I need Jesus, okay? That's the Lutheran view. The dispensational view, which is a little bit of an older dispensational view, was this, that this is a description of what the kingdom will be like in the future millennial Jewish kingdom, okay? And the idea is this, that Jesus offered the kingdom to the Jews, they refused it, they crucified him, and so this is going to, this Sermon on the Mount, it's going to be lived later in a kingdom that's to come in the future. And so you're like, oh, good, that's a relief, you know? Or there's the social gospel view. The social gospel view says that this doesn't really have anything to do with your relationship with God. The Sermon on the Mount is just to challenge social evils, right? This is just to challenge the way that people are oppressed by unjust governments and society. So don't worry about the judgment of God part. It really is just important that you apply this to social institutions. So you're like, well, that's a relief, you know? Like, let's apply it to them, right? All these views, guys, more or less have some element of truth, but what they don't do is they don't really deal with what Jesus says here. They're trying to avoid the very frightening demands that the Sermon on the Mount makes. And so how should we read it? What is this thing that we're going to study for these next several weeks, this Sermon on the Mount? What's it for? How do we study it? I want to give you three ways to look at the Sermon on the Mount. 
Because my hope is that we're not going to just talk about it here. We're going to talk about it during the week, and you're going to read it privately. You're going to read it with family and friends, and it's going to be something that we really immerse ourselves in and learn how to do it. And so there's three ways that I want to show you to look at. First, read this sermon to have Jesus crush your self-righteousness. You guys know what self-righteousness is, right? It's when you say, the righteousness I have in myself is is, is, is good, I am superior, I, I have a righteousness in me that I can stand on my own two feet, and, you know, and, and everybody should you know, agree that I'm a good person and God should accept me. You, we should read this sermon to crush our self-righteousness. Guys, no sane person would read the Sermon on the Mount and think that they perfectly lived it out. You know? I mean, you read it, and it's not long before you read this and you go, that's not me. And I don't see how that could be me. Um, Jesus' commands here are hard because they reach all the way down into the heart. I mean, if Jesus just messed with, like, what we did, we could kind of maybe live up to that. But he goes further. He goes, like, what's going on inside there? Let me take a look around. Let me look in your heart. Let me look in your thoughts. I mean, think about what he says about anger and unforgiveness and bitterness. Matthew 5, uh, 21, he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the fire of hell. So he says, it's not enough not to just murder people. You hear people say that, like, I'm a good person, I haven't murdered anybody. It's like, okay, well, that's good, keep doing that. But Jesus says, there's something deeper. There's the heart in anger, you know. Are you seething with anger? He says, later on, he says that we need to actually love our enemies. In, in Matthew 5, 43, he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus even says that if we know somebody is angry at us, that we've sinned against them, we know they have something against us, he says, don't come with your offerings, you know? Don't, don't bring your offerings to the temple or whatever. If you know somebody has something against you, he goes, leave your offering and go and be reconciled to your brother. He says we have to forgive others. I mean, how challenging is this? In Matthew six fourteen, he says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive yours. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I mean, Jesus' commands reach deep down into our hearts, and he probes our hearts, and he finds our anger and our bitterness and our unforgiving um, thoughts. It's intimidating, right? Or what, what about what he says about lust? In Matthew 5, uh, 27, he says, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to every one of you, Um, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is this relentless judge of our hearts. And he's even a relentless judge of like good religious duties. Um, Take a look at Matthew uh, 6.1. Even when we're doing good things, he says, well, what's the motive? Take a look at it. Matthew 6.1 says, beware of those who practice righteousness before others in order to be seen by them. How convicting is that? For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And he goes on to talk about giving and prayer and fasting. And he says these kind of core um, religious duties are good to do, but they they need to be done out of a motive of love for God, not a desire to be seen. And you know what? You might go, you know what? I've done those all pretty well, right? Maybe. I don't know. I wouldn't say that, but you might say that. You might say, you know, I've done these all pretty well. And let's say you have. Let's say you've done all those pretty well. What's the next thing that we naturally start doing when we feel like, you know what, I live up to this? Yep, the next thing we do is we start looking around and we start going, why don't other people have their act together? 
why aren't other people doing this like me? And what does Jesus say? Matthew 7, 1. Judge not that you will not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Jesus confronts all the ugly parts of human religion. You know, because people can be, you know, sinners and do awful things outside of Christianity, and they can do an awful lot of awful, ugly things inside. And Jesus is well aware of that, you know. He goes after the judging. I mean, think about, like, the way that we judge people in our minds throughout the day that nobody knows about. And just think about, would I want to be judged with that kind of severity? So I wouldn't want to be judged with that kind of severity. And so God judges the heart. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And guys, that used to really bother me. Did it ever bother you? Ever bother you that God judges the heart? I mean, it used to seem to me to be kind of picky, you know? Because, I mean, if by some miracle I managed to do the right actions, why does he care about my heart? Why can't he just, you know, leave that alone? You know, if I'm doing the right things externally, why isn't that good enough for him? Why does, why does he need to go into the heart? And then I saw this passage. Take a look at Matthew 23. He was talking to some religious people, um, and he calls them hypocrites, and he says this. He says, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. And then he says, you blind Pharisees or religious leaders, he says, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside might be clean. And what he's saying here is, God's not picky about looking at the heart. Imagine if you came over to my house and I said, hey, you want something to drink? It's a hot day or whatever. And you're like, yeah, sure. And I give you this cup, and it's, it's really nice. Like, uh, it's, it's a beer stein with, like, a guy's head and a beard, okay? It's, like, really nice, okay? <laughs> really shiny and stuff like that. And I give it to you, and I hand it to you, and you're like, oh, it's a cool mug and stuff. And then you take it, and you look inside, and there's, like, stuff floating in it. What would you say? You'd be like, hey, Eric, um, can I get a different cup? So you're like, what's your problem? What's good? Well, this one's kind of dirty, No, it looks fine. It's dirty inside. You go, stop being picky. Just drink it. Right? That wouldn't be picky, would it? Guys, God sees the heart equally vividly to our our actions and our words. The, The heart, your heart, is where God drinks from. He drinks from our lives and our heart. And so why shouldn't he judge the heart? I mean, a lot of times, you know, it's awkward to think about. Like, your relationship with God is one in which your deeds and your words are equally obvious as your intentions and your thoughts. Think about that for a little bit. That's an awkward relationship, right? I mean, we don't have relationships like that with people where, you know, we say something, we do something, but they're like constantly knowing exactly what we're thinking. That's an awkward situation (laughs) to be in, right? I mean, sometimes when we're praying, right, we'll be praying and we're praying real good and it seems like we have good intentions, but in our hearts, we're thinking something else. We're thinking like, man, my kids are making me crazy. And you're like, well, I don't want to tell, talk to God about that. And he's like, about what? <laughs> I mean, he hears the intentions of our hearts. I mean, we need to be open with him because he sees these. Jesus is saying also, though, that our, our actions and our intentions in verse um, in 548, he says, they must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus crushes our self-righteousness. I mean, when I read this, I personally, I have to surrender and say, I'm not even close to meeting God's standard and never have been. Are you? And, and God requires perfection, and why shouldn't he? He's perfect. Why shouldn't he want a perfect bride, right? He deserves it. So what's, what is our other option when we read something like this but to just declare bankruptcy, <laughs> to just surrender and say, I don't have what it takes to enter the kingdom. I don't belong here, not even close. 
And then what happens is, and then we're ready to receive the cross, right? We're ready to receive Jesus' forgiveness. And the cross isn't mentioned in this section, but at the end of Matthew, it is. In Matthew 20, 28, he says that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus has made a way for people like us. Isn't that good news? Isn't it good news when you really hear the demands of God and that they go all the way to the heart? It's good news for Jesus to say, I've done it all for you. I lived a perfect life in your place. I died that you might be forgiven. You know, you don't need to worry about the judgment of God. And so that Lutheran view I said is right. It's it's right that Jesus uses the Sermon on the Mount to crush our self-righteousness and show us our need for him. Guys, but I don't think that's all he meant by this sermon. I don't think that's the only thing he wants us to see. I think he wants us to see more, and I'll tell you why. It's because of the way it ends. Look at Matthew 7, 24. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine, and what's the next word? And does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Guys, Jesus intends that we actually learn how to live what's in here. We're his disciples, we're his students, and, and he wants us to actually learn how to live what's in here. And so Jesus does want our self-righteousness to be crushed by this, but he also wants us to learn from him how to live the kingdom life now. He actually intends that we learn to live it. Who is the audience of the Sermon on the Mount? What's that? They're mostly Jewish people, yeah. And, and they were his disciples. If you look in verse 1, it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him. It's, it's us. It's people like us. We are the audience that Jesus has in mind, his students, his, his apprentices. Um, remember that medieval Catholic view? Medieval Catholic view was like, just the saints have to live this? Well, according to the New Testament, all people who trust in Christ are saints. I could show you passages on that. And so they're right that the saints are the ones who live it, But what they didn't realize is that all believers are considered saints by God. We're called to live this. And so Jesus wants to teach us how to live the kingdom life now. Have you guys heard much about the kingdom? You've heard a lot about the kingdom. Okay, good. Because a lot of Christians haven't. It is a very common theme in this book. Jesus mentions the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God more than 50 times in the book of Matthew. The kingdom of God is simply this. It's his reign. Kingdom of God is wherever God's rule as king is experienced. Like when we were singing that last song, Let Heaven Come, what we're singing there is we're singing what he taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's reign, his rule, his perfect rule of the world, we want it to come here. We're praying for it to come here. Um, And that's what the ultimate outcome of the world is, is that one day Jesus comes, he reigns here perfectly and renews all things. And so Jesus came announcing the kingdom, and we see that even in the very beginning. He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And, and he mentions the kingdom constantly. And um, sometimes he talked about the kingdom as future, right? That the kingdom's coming in the future. But a lot of times he also talked about how the kingdom is already here. So this full expression of the kingdom of God is going to come in the future, but even now it's coming to some degree. The kingdom of God is already, but not yet. It's not yet fully here, but it's already here in some degrees. Um, one time Jesus talked about the kingdom in Matthew 13. He talked about it as that it invades and grows. He talked about it as a seed. The kingdom of God started when Jesus came here, and it's like he dropped a seed in the ground of this world, and that it's growing into this huge tree that just takes over. Another image he used was of yeast. A woman takes a little bit of yeast, she puts it on the dough, and then she works it in, and it spreads throughout the whole lump of dough. In the same way, Jesus is right now causing his kingdom to expand and infiltrate this world. 
There's a really cool passage if you want to look at it, Matthew 12, 28, where Jesus, he's casting out demons, and they're asking him some questions about it, and Jesus says this about the kingdom. He says in, in Matthew 12, 28, he says, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, listen to this, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he'll plunder his goods. Jesus is talking about how he has come to kind of tie up Satan and then steal his stuff, which is super cool. He's, Satan is that strong man that gets tied up and then his stuff stolen. The stuff he's stealing is people. Every time a person comes to trust in Jesus, they're set free from the kingdom of darkness, kingdom of Satan, and they're transferred into God's kingdom in which they become citizens and they get to learn how to live in freedom. You know, when we were under Satan's rule, we were enslaved to him. But when we become into Jesus' kingdom, we're freed and we get to start to learn how to live as citizens of the kingdom. You guys remember the dispensational view? That this stuff is to be lived in the kingdom when it comes? It's true, but the kingdom's here. And so we can begin to learn these things now. That the, the kingdom is already breaking in and infiltrating, and Jesus' kingdom is invading the world. He's stealing people out of the kingdom of darkness and freeing them into his kingdom. And this is part of the good news, guys. I think sometimes the good news is put this way. You know, you're a sinner. Jesus died to pay your debt. If you trust in him, you, you'll get um, made right with God. End of story. Or sometimes they'll add, and if you come to Jesus, you're going to have to change your life too, as if it's bad news, you know. <laughs> But the gospel says this, that Jesus came through his death and resurrection. He has um, forgiven us. He has paid the full debt. He's made us right with God. And now he's giving us freedom as well. In the gospel, we not only get forgiveness for our sins, but we get freedom from our sins. That's part of the good news. The good news is not only that Jesus has taken away the penalty of our sin, he's also taking away the power of our sin. And I think, guys, there's a lot of people in our culture that would love to hear that piece of the good news. There's tons of people that feel stuck, especially when you mention the heart. You know, how many people, even some of us here, that are just completely enslaved by bitterness? Jesus deals with that a lot in this here. I mean, it's easy to get enslaved by bitterness. It's easy to get enslaved by lust. It's easy to get stuck in a pattern of unforgiveness, of judgmentalism, right, of human approval. Jesus deals with all these things. And yet he says, I will not only forgive you for your sins, I will free you. But what's interesting about it is the forgiveness you get immediately, like you come to Christ, the forgiveness is given immediately. The freedom's a process, isn't it? For those of you guys who have come to Christ, some things you stop doing right away. Other things you had to learn how to stop doing. Isn't that interesting? We're Jesus' disciples, we're his students, and we have to learn how to walk in the freedom he bought us at the cross and resurrection. Take a look at Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. Jesus says this as an invitation to come to him. He says, come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take your yoke, which is also his teaching, upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And listen to this last part. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This idea of a yoke, that Jesus' teachings, including the Sermon on the Mount, is like a yoke. You guys know what a yoke is. not yoke like an egg yoke. It's a yoke like a piece of wood that would go over two animals. So you got two oxen. I know you guys probably plowed the field this morning with oxen. but So two oxen, yoke goes over them. It's a big wood thing. You find them around. People decorate their yards with them. Um, anyway, and that would pull the cart, right? And he's saying, take my yoke, you know, my teaching, take it upon you. 
and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. And he says this weird thing, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so when we read his laws and his commands, you think, these sound hard. How can they be made easy and the burden be made light? And the answer, guys, is heart change. The way that the yoke's made easy and the burden's made light is by him changing our hearts. As he changes our hearts, guys, he creates the kind of heart in us that the Sermon on the Mount will be the only natural way to live. Isn't that exciting? I just love that. I love that Jesus not only forgives us, but he frees us. He changes our hearts over time so that things like the Sermon on the Mount will become the only natural way for our hearts to live. And next week, we're going to look at the the Beatitudes, and that's a picture of that kind of heart, right? Guys, discipleship is not just about trying harder and harder to do things you don't want to do. That's not what it's about. Discipleship is about our hearts being transformed so the things that Christ commanded become increasingly easy to do. Isn't that awesome? Just love that. I mean, I want that so badly. I want so badly for the things that Christ commanded, for my heart to resonate with them, and for they to be things that I naturally want to do. So discipleship, guys, is about learning how to have Christ live through us. And so remember the social gospel view? They said the Sermon on the Mount's really to be applied, but you know, it's to be applied out there to institutions. And one of the things they say is that this Sermon on the Mount doesn't really require you to have Jesus as your God. It doesn't really matter what your God is. Just pick it up and do it, right? We can't pick it up and do it. Guys, if you ever tried to steer a car that's power steering is out, is that like the most painful thing to ever do? I don't know why it's so painful. But my truck broke, my, I'm a horse vet, and my work truck broke down this week, and get it on the you know, tow truck and drive it in there. And he wants to like, he doesn't just want to drop it off in the parking lot. Like he wants to put it in this spot and park it just right. And so he has me get in it. I don't even know if he's supposed to do this, but he has me get in it while he's lowering it. And he's like, okay, put your foot on the brake. And he's like, turn the wheel all the way around, you know? And then he's like, let the brake off. And it took a little while before we got it right. It seemed kind of dangerous. But anyway, so I'm turning this thing and like, you guys have done this, right? How many of you guys have like tried to turn a steering wheel that the power steering's out? You won't do it for long right? (laughs) You won't do that for long. Guys, that's what it's like to try and live the Sermon on the Mount in your own ability. You're not going to do it for long. (laughs) It's going to make you and everybody around you miserable, okay? Discipleship's about learning to live Christ's commands and Christ's strength. And so it'll be like power steering because you're still steering, you're still doing things, you're still trying, you're still striving, but you feel underneath your work a power that's not your own. What is that? It's Christ's life flowing through you. That's what he promises. Super exciting. And so Jesus intends that we learn to live this. Are we going to do it perfectly? What are you guys saying? We're going to live the Sermon on the Mount perfectly? No. But you know what, guys? There's a lot of room between perfect and where we are now. Isn't there? A lot of times people are like, oh, you know, I'm not going to even try because I won't be able to live it perfectly. Like, here's perfect. Here's me. We can move this way and not be in any danger of being perfect, right? Like, we got so much distance to go. Like, don't worry about that. We want to learn to do it, guys. And as a church, we want to be a community of friends that help each other learn how to do these things. And we want to be real practical, guys, because Jesus promises that this is the happy life. He does. How much happier will you be when your heart is more free from lust and anger and judgmentalism and bitterness and addiction to approval of other people? A lot happier. And so over the next few weeks, we want to talk about how practically do we do this. When we talk about anger, we don't just say, stop being angry. But how do we learn to walk in it? 
How do we actually experience Christ's life? How do we think about anger? We want to do that. And so as you read the Sermon on the Mount, have it crush your self-righteousness. And then learn from Jesus how to live the kingdom life now. And then real briefly, I want to say one more thing, which is when you read the Sermon on the Mount, see how beautiful God is. This is really a sermon about God when you read it. I mean, as you look at it, you're going to see the beauty of who God is. I mean, the kind of God that Jesus is revealing to us is a God who is a savior. A God who loved us, who were his enemies. And not only did he cause the the rain and the sunshine to come upon us, but he loved us enough to come into the world as a man. God came as a man who lived everything he preached. which That's a good reason to worship him right there. He, He lived everything he preached. He was a man who loved his enemies and prayed for those who persecuted him. He was a man who quite literally gave his enemies the shirt off his back. And he rescued us by giving his very life on the cross. Guys, on the cross, Jesus didn't just offer his face to be slapped. He offered his body to be pierced. This is the kind of God that we worship. And now if you trust in him, guys, the Sermon on the Mount shows you what kind of father God will be to you. He's a God who welcomes you. He's a God who brings you home and adopts you, makes you his very child. He's a a father who cares about the health of your heart. I mean, stop thinking about him getting into your heart as meddlesome. Start thinking about this is a father who cares about your heart. This is a father. I love this part where he says, um, you know, don't worry about what's going to happen to you. And he goes, he talks about how God is the kind of God who feeds birds. I love that. I had a, a experience, I remember growing up, we'd go to the zoo all the time, and there was this crazy old man. And uh, the reason I thought he was crazy is because he'd walk around the zoo with a big bag of seeds, and he'd be, you know, feeding the birds, and they would all land on him and stuff. He was like, uh, what's that guy? No. Who? You guys all have different ones. Anyway. So he's this crazy old guy, and he's got these seeds, and, and all these birds are landing on him and stuff. And sometimes I think about when Jesus talks about, like, God is the kind of God that feeds birds, you're going to be fine. <laughs> like, he feeds birds. And you're way more valuable as his child um, than birds are. He cares for you as his own kid. He's a father who gives good gifts. He's a father who sees what you're going through and will meet you in secret. Is that your God this morning? Father, we uh, are very, very, very thankful, Lord, for your son and his sacrifice for us, Lord. As we look at the law, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, We know that we have not, in one day of our lives, not for one minute or second of our lives, have we lived this perfectly. And so we thank you, Jesus, that you have come and you have paid that debt and you have been our righteousness. And Lord, we also want to thank you, too, that you have made us students. That we don't have to be caught in the same old sin patterns, Lord. And so we pray as we start this series and we go through the Sermon on the Mount, Lord, please change us. Show us how to be your students. Show us how to somehow experience your son's life flowing through us like power steering, Lord. That you would give us a life that we're still acting, we're still doing, we're still obeying you, but we're feeling a power, a strength coming from within that is not our You've been listening to the weekly podcast of the Menifee Campus of Covenant Grace Church. If you'd like to know more about Covenant Grace Church, visit us online at covgrace.org.